This is Fully Vested, a weekly podcast where Jason Rowley and Graham Peck discuss technology and venture capital investing. This week, after brief updates about marijuana becoming recreationally legal in Illinois and vaping flavors becoming illegal in the U.S. as it relates to our Vice episode, we discuss Snap's acquisition of Ukrainian-based AI factory, and we discuss our views on several of Fred Wilson's top nine trends from the decade of the 2010s and a couple of the trends of his views on the new decade of the 2020s. The show was recorded on January 6th. You can learn more at fullyvested.co. Let's assume that it happened. No, we're on. We're on. Oh, we're on. Oh, <laughs> we're on. Uh, we got a Ladies hot mic. gentlemen, you witnessed a, a near miracle where I know when the call starts. Now, later, I'll get this audio file in the last five minutes, including when <laughs> Jason didn't even have his headphones on and I was talking to myself. We'll be on the call. No, I'm sure. no, I, I, I swear to you, Graham, I, I literally oh. did just start call recorder. Well, Jason, mm. what I had just asked before you did that was uh, <laughs> how your quarterly report's coming. I know that's, that's a busy time mm. for you, and you're writing that right now. So mm-hmm. uh, a- any preview of coming attractions for our uh, listening audience? I know it'll be published yet this week, but this uh-huh. episode won't be, so. Nope. Uh, are there, is there previews of coming attractions? I don't know. I mean, uh, I've, I've made a lot of charts. <laughs> Covering Ooh, both. How many charts? Many, many, many charts. So oh, I, too many. To- yeah. Uh, well, actually, no. I could probably count. Uh, you know, Graham, I'm I'm a occasionally <laughs> occasionally a somewhat numerical man. Title. Do you have uh, a chart of charts? Hmm. Wouldn't you like to know? Um, I have a, a large quantity of charts. I believe, uh, do, 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 do what? So 15 to 30, do, 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 uh, somewhere, I probably made somewhere around 40 charts between the global, the U.S. and Canada report, the Texas uh, slash Austin uh, venture capital report, and the... Uh, uh, sort of like geographic report that we're doing on the state of venture in Europe. Um, so yeah, so I made about 40 charts. Um, I uh, I don't know if I'm at liberty to discuss uh, what they all suggest, um, but, uh, you know, 2019 was a very active year in the uh, venture ecosystem, both uh, in the U.S. and Canada, and then the, you know, worldwide. Um, don't know if it met uh, the same... Very high high level set uh, in 2018, uh, and I think that's all I'm going to mention about uh, specifics. Uh, Graham, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. good. I, uh, it's you know, a, it's a happy new year. Happy new decade. Yeah, yeah. You you too. I, I can't believe it's a new decade. Obviously, I knew it was going to be a new year, uh, but kind of the whole new decade thing and how people are treating that, uh, like kind of like it's a really a whole new hard reset, uh, which it is. Uh, that, uh, that, that kind of caught me by a surprise and I was not thinking about that one. No. You know, so, someone was pointing out to me that like all of the Y2K silliness, that was more than 20 whole years ago now. Wow. Wow. You know, the, um, the, uh, the old, uh, old posts and, uh, notifications about Y2K are now, uh, old enough to, uh, potentially serve in the third world war. No, oh, yeah. There you go. <laughs> I'm so sorry, listeners. <laughs> I'm oh, sorry, my. Graham. Uh, I didn't mean to take it I to actually, a dark I saw, place. I saw, I saw a protest, and uh, that was one of the signs. Uh, no third third world war in Iran. Well, so. I that that is oh, a boy. that's a that's a sentiment I can get behind. Um, you know this uh, this this new year brings some uh, some new laws. Uh, oh, we have a yep. little bit of follow up to discuss before getting into what we're talking about. Uh, this week, uh, uh, Graham, I'm going to ask you, uh, the question that I asked, uh, what was it? Episode two, uh, two or three of, of whichever, when we, whenever we started publishing, which is, uh, do you want to talk yeah, about sure. weed? Yeah, sure. Let's talk about weed. All right. Uh, uh, weed's legal in Illinois now. Well, in Illinois. Yeah. All right. Re- recreational. Recreationally. And, and that's really what changed. Yes. In- well, and, I think we're also letting something like eleven thousand nonviolent marijuana only uh, former criminals uh, out of prison, if I'm not mistaken. That is 100 percent correct. Um, and I think the only other change is that um, 
uh, folks with medical cards uh, can now grow some number of plants. I think it's I, I think it's five. I, how many plants? I think it's five. It's but I might be wrong plants. on that. Well, never never grown marijuana, so I'm not sure. Me neither. But, <laughs> Uh, anyways, Graham, I think, I think think we've just gotten done talking about weed. All right. What else did we have? A quick uh, throwback to our vice episode. Oh shoot. No, 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 no. Well, so we do have another vice episode follow-up, which is about jewel, right? Yeah. And so, so that's the other thing is obviously, uh, and I think this is us wide, although I don't know a lot of the details here, but I think, uh, that now, uh, a lot of the, Seemingly fun flavors like fruit and mint flavored uh, small pods uh, of uh, e-cigarettes have been uh, banned uh, federally, if I'm not mistaken, because of kind of the, I guess, quote unquote, vaping crisis. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, I think you can still purchase those flavors in larger quantities. So if you either mix your own or use some of the larger, uh, larger drum based products, I'm pretty sure you can still get them. But um, but the small Small, con- quickly consumable versions, I think, are are out countrywide. Hmm. So hmm. I think those are both follow ups from our uh, also from, from the our, Vice episode. The Vice episode. That's right. Yes. Yeah, Graham. What do you? I mean, I I maintain that. Um, uh, obviously, you know, vaping is bad. Uh, nicotine is bad. Whether it's coming in the form of vapor or smoke or whatever. Um, but, uh, me personally, um, uh, having smoked a couple of cigarettes, you know, once or twice, uh, not anymore, you know, really ever, not for years and years at this point, but I do remember they are not very tasty things. Uh, and, uh, I I wouldn't blame somebody for wanting to have something that doesn't taste like tobacco. But I also understand the whole, uh, you know, don't want to have something that appeals to kids angle as well. So, yeah, because it because it certainly seems like it's uh, that flavor profile. I'm just guessing. Uh, I've not uh, enjoyed any of the you know crazy flavored ones of these, but um, or any of the not crazy flavored ones of these either. But, um, but yeah, it seems like that kind of goes at, uh, goes at the younger crowd. You know, I think one of the things that we talked about in our, I think very first episode that we published, uh, was a Chicago company called, um, Philo. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that Philo did was, um, was track marketing efforts for, cannabis companies. I'm certain that they have been getting a lot more interest from Illinois-based companies, and they're headquartered right here in uh, our hometown of Chicago, mm. although they have a big presence worldwide. Um, but you know, one of the things that was interesting, I remember from, from that episode and from doing my research for that episode, was that different states have different laws about where, about to what age cannabis products can be marketed. How you could differentiate in an ad targets someone who is between 18 and 20 versus an ad who targets someone only 21 and older, I guess personally, I just have a lot of questions about that very fine line. My my bet is, is it has to do something with uh, advertising on social media. This being said, I don't have a lot of – Could be. I don't, have, I don't have a lot of like context about uh, – so I've never really, I, I haven't personally done a lot of marketing using Facebook or Instagram or, um, or Google, which I, Google, I understand is not social media per se, but you know what I mean? Um, uh, obviously, you know, Facebook, they ask for your birth date when you sign up, um, mm-hmm. ostensibly to verify that you're over the age of 13. Um, but, you know, assuming, which is a big assumption that, you know, if you as a user are being honest about your birthday, they can use then use that uh, your stated birth date as a gating mechanism for uh, adult only products. You know, so like you know, eighteen plus products, twenty one plus products, um, or services for that matter. For example, um, you probably wouldn't want to actively advertise military recruitment efforts to fourteen year olds, as an example. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it really depends on the venue. I I don't know how you would differentiate, say, a um, a print advertisement if such a thing is legal. I don't know. I haven't read the 
um, the the Illinois law in depth. Uh, but you know, it. Uh, I, I guess there are there's room for for you know for for where I could see that could be a, a regulated thing. Um, but but then there's also a lot of open questions as to like how exactly on certain media, um, namely like print or broadcast or whatever, um, you'd be able to uh, effectively age gate that stuff. So yeah, I mean certainly you could ask some questions. I would guess about uh, the the medium and uh, what the demographics of the users are, but. Yeah, that's, I guess, getting into a lot of really detailed marketing stuff. Anyway, yeah, I think that, uh, I think that that's interesting. Indeed. By the way, quick real-time uh, follow-up. Real-time uh, follow-up. Our, third, our third episode, titled The Mystery Meat Metric, is where Jason and I discuss both of our kind of personal biases and the morality of, uh, of vice investing. So that's the, that's the episode, uh, number three, the mystery meat metric, uh, where we also discuss, uh, venture J curves, but that's the episode where we discuss primarily vice investing Indeed. just in case you check it out. Indeed. Um, Graham, you know, this is, uh, this is the year 2020. Um, and, uh, you know, we have we have uh, we have a, a, a big topic to end up discussing uh, a little bit later, uh, namely sort of using uh, Fred Wilson's really excellent summary of what happened in, in the 2010s as a jumping off point for discussion between you and I. Uh, but uh, sort of also germane to uh, our own interests, which I suppose we have not yet introduced ourselves. And given the fact that we're 11 minutes in, might be a little late for late for that. Um, hi, I'm Graham. Uh, hi. Oh. <laughs> I'm Jason. <laughs> Graham, you do some stuff in uh, involving uh, Eastern European uh, development uh, efforts. Uh, I, I, there was some news that broke this week or last week uh, about it. Uh, do you have any, uh, not about your thing in particular, uh, but uh, do you have any uh, any news to share? Um, well, sure. Uh, so, yeah. So, I think uh, what you're specifically talking about is Snapchat made an acquisition of a uh, Ukrainian-based technology company called AI Factory, and I think the company may have already had an office, or even possibly technically been headquartered in Silicon Valley. Uh, but Snap acquired for an estimated uh, $166 million, although that number has not been verified by Snap. Um, uh, this company. Uh, the company specifically was working uh, a lot on their kind of computer vision and a new feature that Snap has released called Cameos uh, or animated selfie-based video uh, kind of feature. Um, and so the uh, Snap had previously acquired a company called – Oh, my goodness. Hang on. Oh, I'm very popular. Jason's very popular. <laughs> Hello. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's oh, it's actually it's it's uh it's a friend of the show. I'll I'll message the person to say um that uh that we'll be back. Or that I'll be back. Ah, that I'll call wonderful. him later. Sorry, continue, Graham. Or maybe no start over. Uh, it's up to you. Ah, no, uh, I'll, I'll continue. What's in the show is in the show. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, so uh, Snap acquired a company called uh, Luxary, I think, in 2015 um, that basically has become the uh, standard for selfie lenses across uh, kind of most uh, social platforms, Snap being kind of the, the driver of those. And so um, one of the uh, one of the executives uh, from that company uh, left Snap uh, after becoming their director of engineering and uh, then co-founded with two other gentlemen, uh, AI Factory, uh, which had, I think, about 60 or so, uh, 70 or so employees, uh, TechCrunch reports uh, based in Ukraine um, and also some uh, folks in San Fran. Uh, and so that uh, that that has now been purchased very quietly by Snapchat to integrate into its new cameo uh, animated video feature. So cool. Anyway, and and as Jason kind of referred to, uh, I I do work a lot with a couple of different companies. Uh, the main one in particular, which you can also find in my bio, is a company called Bright Grove. 
Uh, Brightgrove didn't have anything to do with uh, with this specifically, but Brightgrove has about 350 or 400 software developers between offices in Kharkiv and Kiev, Ukraine, the two largest Ukrainian cities, and uh, and they also have a small, mostly sales-focused office in Minsk, Belarus. And so I work a lot with Brightgrove on um, developing and managing some of their U.S. client-based accounts. Um, and so our primary model, not to go too deep into this or make this a direct pitch for Brightgrove, although I'm certainly glad to talk to any of our fast listening audience about Brightgrove services, if this is ever, ever of interest to anybody, but, um, Brightgrove primarily uh, is an outsourced digital kind of talent agency. So we're, we, we call ourselves a dev shop, but really what we do is recruit developers to work on behalf of other clients. And then we wholly subcontract those people that we find and screen technically and you screen for cultural fit with your team. They then work for you and on your product or service as if they worked for your company from our offices in Ukraine and Belarus, uh, but they work for your company on a full-time basis. So I think that's a pretty cool model. Um, you obviously get some advantage of development uh, overnight or different hours. So that's really beneficial to some companies. Um, and you certainly get access to a, a highly capable talent pool um, at a dramatically lower cost than the average rate here in Chicago or even around the U.S., uh, you know, compared to even some cheaper software development development communities here. So, cool. So, oh, yeah, it's always good to see uh, cool stuff coming out of Eastern Europe, uh, in my opinion, and, and kudos to all the wonderful folks uh, over there doing great software work, and especially the team at AI Factory for their, their recent acquisition by Snap. Nice. And uh, for the record, uh, Brightgrove is not a sponsor of this podcast. Uh, just a uh, nominal sponsor of Graham. <laughs> That's exactly right. Sure. So, but hmm. uh, we can try to sell them this episode later. <laughs> uh, we don't have any way of doing snipping in uh, mid-roll ads or whatever. Probably uh, the certainly, better. certainly not an easy one at this point. Uh, no. But we could cut to a really, uh, really annoying uh, ad right now. Now, Jason, have you been sleeping on a Casper mattress by chance? Oh, of course I have. <laughs> not a sponsor just kidding well i i do sleep on a casper mattress i bought one with my own money and um i'm not gonna conf- i'm not gonna endorse casper mattresses on this podcast they'll have to pay me for that um they are decent mattresses though do you need to recruit some new employees have you tried zip recruiter yet <laughs> anyway Family Guy actually did a bit just like this in their uh, most recent episode that was absolutely hilarious, I, uh, in my opinion, where Peter was recording a podcast episode about a true crime thing, and uh, instead of focusing on that, he read four back-to-back ads for ZipRecruiter, uh, Casper Mattress, and two other companies that escaped my mind. Oh, and Stamps.com? absolutely hilarious. Uh, I don't think that was one, but... Anyway, I'm certain we could find that clip. We'll try to link to that clip in the show notes if YouTube has it. Will we? Yeah, we probably should. I don't know if we endorse linking a family guy in our our show notes. Oh, come on. We got to have a little fun with this. (sighs) Graham, I'm like the least fun person on the internet. Mm. Mm. Well, (laughs) I'm trying to set the bar lower, everybody. (laughs) Uh, All right. Do you want to talk about a VC from New York? Let's do it. Okay, cool. So um, so we're going to chat a little bit about uh, Fred Wilson. Uh, so in case you guys are unfamiliar, uh, Mr. Wilson is the uh, f- co-founder and general partner of Union Square Ventures. Uh, they're a New York-based venture capital firm that's sort of been in the business for a uh, very long time. Uh, Fred Wilson, he, I don't know, I forgot what he did before getting into Ventureland, but, um, which I probably should have had, uh, prepared before we did this show, um, for the record. Uh, but, uh, I, I, I don't know him personally, but I know him in the colloquial sense of, I know him, uh, as a, uh, as a, as obviously a venture capitalist, but also as a incredibly prolific blogger. Uh, on the website uh, avc.com and uh, as he does every once in a while um, typically every year he does a uh, sort of review of of the of the year that was 
Um, and it being the transition between uh, two decades, uh, he did a retrospective on the 2010s, uh, which will be definitely linked to the show notes, uh, in the show notes, rather. And, um, Graham, we have a lot to talk about. Uh, uh, I think the, the biggest point that sort of echoes a lot of what we'd been talking about here on Fully Vested, um, and then also, you know, a, a lot of the stuff that's been coming up more recently in, in the technology press, uh, has been, uh, has been the sort of like uh, how Fred Wilson sort of frames it as the failure of uh, of capital as a moat, um, and and that that sort of uh, degradation of that model uh, for for entrepreneurs. So Graham, I know that you probably had a lot of stuff to talk to, uh, uh, to talk to this point. Um, what uh, what 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 went through your head when you were reading this? I mean, I think that, you know, he makes a really good point and uh, or, or, or series of points about that. But I guess the only thing I have that potentially contradicts it is I think we're still a little bit early in that trend to say that it's not going to work. I, I know that, uh, you know, not not to just try to be controversial, but um, I know I brought this up as we kind of planned this episode. Um, I think he is definitely right in all of the um, examples that he brings up, which exactly as you said, are some of our kind of favorite whipping boys. Uh, you know, WeWork is mentioned in the third sentence of that point. Um, and that's probably the most commonly uh, beat upon startup, uh, you know, here at Fully Vested. Um, he also talks specifically about Uber. Um, and, you know, while, while I take the point and while certainly in the case of Uber, WeWork, and probably a lot of other big companies you could point to where a lot of money has been burned, um, you know, yeah, capital as a moat probably hasn't worked or definitely hasn't worked at least thus far. Um, I don't know that that means it won't work as a uh, growth model long term. Um, again, not just to, to draw controversy, uh, but, uh, but that's one thing that I think is uh, a really interesting point he makes, and we've definitely seen huge failures of it. I think SoftBank's uh, portfolio is in trouble in no small part because they tried to set the bar as high as possible with capital as a moat. Um, and they picked, unfortunately, at least a couple of businesses uh, where thus far that hasn't worked. Um, but I don't know that that means necessarily that point will be true always and forever. So it'll be interesting to to me to see if that uh, if there's a resurgence and in, in that or if other people continue to try that. I mean, to some extent, almost all venture capital is using some capital as a moat. Maybe some of it's going into product development, of course. But uh, to some extent, if you're putting capital into a business that you expect is going to be burned in the in the with the goal of growing product and or growing uh, revenue base, hopefully both. Um, I mean, all of that's using capital as a moat to yeah, some extent. Yeah. So when I think of when I think of the idea of capital as a moat, it's it's I've always thought of it as as the notion of basically giving companies obviously you know a bunch of money up front so that they're able to. Um, accelerate their growth. So typically that's in the form of like, oh, wow, you know, you're, uh, you know, Siri, you're raising a hundred million dollars series D round. And, you know, chances are a, a very meaningful percentage of that is going to go to, uh, you know, high, you know, increasing your sales team. And I don't know what, what do people do when they raise a lot of money? They put like, they put like really big billboards on like the one Oh one. Right. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I mean, whatever the hell you're going to do with your money, like, like that, I understand. But I've always sort of thought of that then as like, okay, well, then you also have, you know, tens of millions of dollars or or more uh, sort of as in a war chest that you're able to sort of like deploy at will at, well, maybe not at will, obviously you're beholden to your uh, board and yada, yada. But like that you're able to deploy in the future, even though you might not necessarily need the cash now. And, you know, I've I've seen a lot of companies, um, you know, that 
that, you know, in their funding announcements, this might not be quite as, you know, most recently, but, you know, definitely within the last year, I've heard of, of companies saying, okay, well, we've raised a bunch of money. We didn't need to raise now, but we're also concerned about the, you know, long-term funding environment. And so while the, while the going was good, we got it. Um, yeah, you know, and, and I do think that that probably scares away other companies. I mean, you know, it's definitely one way that um, if you're a venture investor and you're looking at, oh boy, am I going to deploy capital into this new business that's pitching me right now? Um, if I see that somebody else that's either in or could easily be in a competitive space just raised, raised an absolutely enormous sum of money especially if they didn't need to do so when they did that, then yeah, that's probably going to impact the chances that I fund that business. Yeah. So, so, so I, for I, us. yeah, I mean, so, so I think it is a moat in that way. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is important for Uber, we work specifically, but many other capital as a moat potential businesses, um, is to think a lot about their their unit economics, right? Because another way that Uber uh, has just burned absolutely tons of the capital that's been put into Uber was not maybe specifically expanding into a new city, as in hiring employees, building up offices or facilities, which they do have in most large towns that they that they operate in. Um, but was in probably setting the price as low as possible while still maybe setting a driver compensation as high as possible so that they could both attract customers and drivers. And they were quite simply paying that uh, premium, in, in Uber's case, on both ends yeah. um, to uh, j- just to gain market share. I look at that a little bit different. I mean, it's the same idea. That's still growth and that's still funding growth. But um, but if they hammer hard on their unit economics, then I think they could hopefully be sure that the way that they're doing that um, and the way I've seen startups do similar things um, – we can, you can be sure or relatively sure with enough, with a big enough sample size that you will recoup the capital you put into that cohort, either defined by time, geography, or both. You could be sure you'll get that capital back. And so I think of that in a way as capital as a moat, but it's also really important, I think, to focus on unit economics when you think about this methodology of growth. And I think the kind of his point here is that some of these businesses have just plowed enormous amounts of money into this type of growth and maybe not been as focused on the economic uh, or unit economic uh, growth or the math hasn't worked out in their favor. Maybe, maybe that's a, another or in some way a little bit finer point of what he's saying here, or, or at least the way I think about it. Yeah, for sure. Um, do, 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 yeah, I, I mean, this will be one of these like interesting trends to see, you know, how it continues into, uh, you know, in, into this upcoming decade. decade. And, and the reason I bring that up is, you know, at least as we speak right now, you know, a couple of days into 2020, as we speak, it's Monday, January 6th. Um, you know, like, we're still in this position of relative economic strength, right? There's there's signs on the horizon that there might be, uh, you know, to my earlier and, and somewhat, uh, you know, ill-advised uh flippant comment about World War Three, which God forbid, you know, no, obviously nobody's hoping uh, happens. But, you know, there's an off chance of there being, uh, you know, geopolitical unrest in in the near future, hopefully not of any sort of large scale. Uh, you know, we are uh, a decade into, you know, what's been the longest, uh, you know, bullish economic cycle in uh, recent U.S. history for sure. Uh, you know, certainly the longest period of time without a recession uh, in in recent memory. Um, you know, there's at some point, at some point, the wheels are going to come off the bus, uh, and and it'll be really interesting to see what happens to this trend of really outsized capital being deployed into uh, into startups uh, going forward. 
Um, because, you know, if, if people take a much more risk-off approach to uh, to their investment uh, activity, um, or, or, you know, or, or even if they continue to fund risky ventures, but do so in a way that um, exposes the investor to less downside risk so in other words by just simply investing less and 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 being able to deal with uh potentially diminished growth out you know uh outcomes um you know i don't know i mean it's it's it'll be it'll it'll be a thing to watch yeah i definitely think so um yeah, I, I mean, this was his number two trend of, uh, of of ten trends of the last decade, and and I think there's uh, no doubt that uh, that it deserves a position uh, approximately that high on the list, and I think that that's that's why it's there. So yeah, I mean, I I I, I couldn't agree more that I think this has been a big thing that has shaped the venture industry as a whole, and uh, and again, I, I do agree it'll be it'll be great to to watch moving forward. This does have an interesting sort of corollary to a point that uh, that that Fred made later in his post, um, which is this idea that innovation is sort of decentralizing outside uh, or rather away from uh, sort of traditional market centers like Silicon Valley and um, and indeed, you know, New York City as well. Um, and uh, and the reason I say it's a corollary is because, Startups based in, you know, the, the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, ones based in uh, New York, uh, to, to a very similar extent, you know, also those based in Boston and, and Los Angeles and other sort of like major coastal markets, you know, they've been able to access really, really large pools of capital um, that has fueled their, you know, fueled the type of growth that we just, you know, got done talking about, which... Um, at least current market conditions for certain companies uh, indicate, uh, you know, that that growth may not have been as as you know robust or sustainable as as say you know some investors may have hoped. Um, but you know, companies based in the Midwest, and I've I've borne this out many many times in analysis that I've done for Crunchbase News. Uh, you know, companies in the Midwest they tend to raise less money. Um, and that's because the Midwest doesn't have, uh, at least historically, uh, not to the scale that, um, you know, certain coastal markets have enjoyed. Uh, you know, the Midwest just doesn't have as deep a pool of capital to draw from uh, for its uh, for its startups. Um, and and, you know, if if the capital moat, you know, as a strategy model uh, is sort of revealing itself to not bear as much fruit as you know some investors would have wanted. Uh, that's a pretty bullish, uh, you know, trend in favor of the Midwest and other sort of lesser, uh, you know, lesser funded markets out there, uh, right? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think so, and so, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think that that's a great kind of. Bridge and and I didn't think when I originally read the article I didn't think about those two as being connected but I think you make a really good point um, and this is you know kind of closely akin I think also to a point that we made earlier in our uh, in our fifth episode uh, uh, kooky little add-ons uh, not I promise this is not just an episode of me calling out to our quote unquote greatest hits in the dozen or so episodes we've launched it to this point but. Um, but you know, we uh, one of the things that we covered in that episode was the annual SAS benchmarks report, um, and and SAS is another thing you know covered here uh, in this article, and that we'll get to in a moment. Um, but in addition to uh, startups raising less capital, uh, they're also more capital efficient. Uh, if they're not in one of the uh, kind of quote unquote expensive areas in the U.S., those would probably be defined as Silicon Valley, New York, and possibly Boston, especially if you're looking at kind of life sciences specific stuff. Um, and so, you know, to kind of take that point a little bit further, if you couple um, that startups raise less capital and are more capital efficient, maybe by necessity, and then couple both of those facts with that uh, startups 
while the number of exits is smaller, uh, return a higher enterprise value uh, upon exit multiple of invested capital by about one to one and a half X, depending on what other region of the country you're comparing them to. I think that's all a series of things that is one of the reasons that I'm a very bullish Midwestern investor. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think that as internet technology, and this isn't a trend specifically covered, but I think it's kind of baked into his point about Silicon Valley, as internet and other technology becomes more advanced and it's easier for people to do, still not every job, but so many jobs uh, from almost anywhere that they've got a reliable internet connection, um, I think many fewer people are, are choosing to live in these uh, incredibly expensive, uh, overpopulated uh, areas. Even as more people worldwide move to cities, uh, I think people are just less likely to flock to uh, certainly Silicon Valley uh, and possibly other places that have had originally been, as he calls it, a mecca for tech and startups. Um, you know, I see a lot of startups moving to Nashville or Denver or other places or uh, or, or to kind of go back to our kind of earlier topic or putting at least part of their people uh, in another part of the world that's much, much less expensive. So for sure. No, I mean, like like I in, you know, in, in sort of my work covering startups uh, and, you know, and reading the coverage of of my colleagues, you know, a lot of the stuff that I that, that we've seen most recently is. You know, you'll have a company that is ostensibly headquartered in San Francisco or New York or whatever. But, you know, really, it it's like it's like maybe they'll have uh, I mean, obviously, it depends on the size of the company. So just bear with me for the sake of example. You know, they might have um, a dozen people or two dozen people or whatever in San Francisco. But, you know, if you really uh you know, ask uh, and and dig a little bit deeper and say, well, hey, well, well, where's all your people at? You know, you said in your press release that you have 50, 50 odd people on the team. Where are they? You know, fine. The company might be based in San Francisco, but, you know, they might have a, uh, a, a very large sales office or, you know, or an engineering office in, say, um, you know, Provo or Salt Lake City, Utah or, um, or Hark of Ukraine. Sure, or Hark of Ukraine. <laughs> Again, Bright Grove is not a sponsor of the show, but it is a sponsor of Graham. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, like, like this is not necessarily a new phenomenon, um, but my my guess is it's one t- that is likely to um, to accelerate in you know, in the coming decades, certainly in the next couple of years, um, just because of the, uh, running the risk of, of making some enemies here, you know, what I'll just sort of, you know, refer to as like an increasingly hostile environment for people who want to live in, um, live and work in the Bay area. Uh, like, yeah, I, I think I think that's a really good point. You know, I mean, we have a portfolio company who um, recently kind of chose, I think primarily because the CEO is based in Menlo Park, to move their officially stated headquarters to, uh, you know, to the Bay Area. Um, but uh, but their team is split almost equally amongst three offices and the other two offices are, are here in the Midwest. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that... Uh, I, I think that's just interesting to, uh, to to watch, and and I definitely agree that I think it'll be a a trend that that is on the rise for another several years, at least, um, depending upon kind of some other macroeconomic factors and how they they may affect that. Yeah, I mean, like, look, not to not to pitch anybody listening to this show from Silicon Valley, um, but like, you can get twice the apartment in like downtown Chicago. Uh, for what you you know spend in in San Francisco, even in a not so great neighborhood of San Francisco, um, like there are serious serious advantages to being located out here. Um, or I mean, not not necessarily just in Chicago or the Midwest, but but really any big market that isn't uh, quite so dominated by 
you know, an existing tech or financial infrastructure uh, sort of industry uh, to, uh, you know, really ramp up rents, um, especially in a place like Silicon Valley where, um, and, and really this is less a Silicon Valley problem and, and more a, um, more a San Francisco specific problem, but this is also endemic elsewhere is a, uh, tremendous, uh, reluctance to, um, engage in, in, you know, new sort of like residential development, um, even though there's clearly, uh, an incredible amount of demand for it. Um, you know, and, uh, yeah, I mean, seems like at least a lot of other markets don't seem to have that same level of friction when it comes to, uh, building new housing when there's uh, demand for it. So Graham, did I lose you? No, sorry. Oh. My uh, microphone bu- mute button was uh, like continuously stuck on mute. I pressed mm. it three times to uh, to be able to start talking again. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, w- one of the things that I think is, I guess, near and dear to my heart is number four on this list. Uh, and that's uh, talking about subscriptions or, or what, you know, would probably also be called SaaS revenue, SaaS or a lot of different other things, AAS as a service. Um, and so I, I, this is one of the biggest trends uh, in my opinion. I mean, obviously he identified as one of the top nine uh, that he calls out, but because this has been, uh, again, I guess near and dear to my heart or to our firm's heart. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of the things that we invest in, at least in the technology fund uh, at Cultivation, uh, which is a team uh, that, that I'm on, um, you know, are are SaaS or other recurrent revenue business models. Um, And so I think paying close attention, again, as we covered in great depth in in one whole episode, but um, but paying a lot lot of attention to what's going on in the SaaS or otherwise recurrent revenue kind of business model uh, world is uh, is something that our team focuses on a, a lot because that's uh, that's really important. So I was really excited uh, to see, uh, you know, to see that called out as as a big trend. And uh, and I think it's really it extends beyond software too, right? Like like ten years ago, there wasn't really infrastructure out there for, um, for example, like independent publishers or. Um, or content creators to be able to monetize their work directly from their audience. Um, you know, a lot of the the infrastructure around, you know, recurring payments, around um, being able to gate access to content um, based on, you know, uh, or pending payment, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like that infrastructure didn't exist. And it's really exciting to see now because it means that people uh who have something to say on the internet and have something valuable to say on the internet are able to you know receive some economic value back from the uh people to whom they uh have provided valuable information or content or entertainment um you know uh just as as independent creators uh and so this is super exciting and it and it unleashes this whole new you know potential wave of innovation allowing you know not just like small like like really big companies to uh to to be successful you know with this with recurring revenue and stuff um but you know smaller companies as well uh but but i think you know the real story here um at least going into the uh next five years or so is going to be you know this whole conversation about the future of work and, you know, how people, especially creative people, are able to make a living, you know, uh, doing what they do, uh, it, that also ties back directly to this emergence of, uh, of the subscription business model and, um, uh, and, and the positive economics that it can uh, deliver to, uh, you know, business proprietors, whether it's a software or, uh, or different type of business. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think you, that, that's a really great point. And I, uh, we focus on B2B technologies at Cultivation. So I think about it less for individuals or creators. But, but you're exactly right that that market has um, really begun to take advantage of uh, both the technology and infrastructure as well as that business model as a whole as a way to monetize a lot of the work that they're doing. And I think, you know, uh, one of the things that I guess I'm surprised, and it's probably baked into at least two or three of these points, but one of the things I'm really surprised isn't a point on here um, of its own is kind of the emergence of the gig economy. And what you're talking about there is, you know, is kind of maybe not the gig economy specifically, but is people making money in a flexible and new way. And I think that that's really valuable. And I think that that SaaS or, or other subscription-based uh, business models are are totally aligned with the flexible way that people are beginning to work more and more. Uh, and hey, I'm right at the front of that line. Um, you know, I kind of make my every single day up of two to four different kind of parts uh, on a daily basis where I'm working uh, with, for, or alongside uh, different groups of uh, partners or uh, in different companies and in a couple cases in whole different industries. Um, I, and, and I, and I personally, I like that flexibility. I uh, see, I, I see where you're going with this, but uh, I, I actually have to politely disagree with you. I don't think that it's that, that, that the comparison is as, I don't think that the, that the two are as similar as, you know, as, as you're making it out to be now, granted, you are correct in that, you know, this is a new way for people to make money, right? This is a uh, an emerging, you know, sort of like economic structure of the past decade, plus or minus. Um, you know, whether you want to time it exactly to a decade or whatever, doesn't matter. Certainly within the last, you know, 15, 20 years um, or 10 years, whatever. Um, but like the the to me, the difference between sort of like gig economy work and talking about subscription revenue stuff is that um, like gig economy work is necessarily very temporary, right? I don't know of a lot of people who are making a, you know, five-year career of being a ride hail driver. Now, granted, I've met many ride hail drivers who have been driving for, you know, a number of years, but I don't think any any of them necessarily see this as a thing that they want to do for the next ten or fifteen years, right? There, it's it's a in in many cases a temporary, uh, you know, source of income, uh, you know, and a temporary relationship with a specific company. In subscription stuff, I think that that that's that 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 where it differs is is that idea of like temporariness and it's precisely the fact that subscriptions and a subscriber base are not temporary that gives subscriptions so much power right like obviously if you have if you're a SaaS business um or really any other type of business where where you can use churn as a metaphor you know uh either something that's literally happening in your you know uh customer base or Something that's sort of approximately happening in your customer base, uh, you know, as long as your your churn isn't over a certain rate, uh, and you continue to acquire customers, your subscriber base is going to continue to grow, um, and and that is sort of an accrual of 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 economic might over time, as opposed to a uh, the more sort of transactional labor relationships that take place in the. Uh, in in more sort of typical stereotypical uh, gig economy things. So sorry if that's too fine a point, but uh, I just wanted to to draw that that one distinction. No, I think you're exactly right, and I probably went far in trying to mash a couple of concepts together. I guess I was just saying that I think that there are a lot of flexible ways that people make money. You were trying. Oh yeah, I for think sure. You, 
commenting specifically how there are a lot of uh, creators of various types of content, including podcasts, um, who get revenue in a subscription way. I guess my point about the gig economy, I certainly agree with you that that's different than a subscription-based economy, but I was I was just surprised that flexible work slash income slash the gig economy, some some flavor of that holistically uh, was not on this list um, because I do think that that's a really big trend. Well, um, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I mean, that's the whole thing. That's the whole question of this, you know, capital is a moat thing, right? Like one of the reasons that to your to a point that you brought up earlier, you know, one of the reasons that Uber was able at Uber and Lyft and, and all these other ride hail services were able to get the scale that they did is because they were subsidizing both sides of the transaction. You know, you see a similar, you know, sort of model happening right now with a lot of the food delivery companies. While simultaneously there's a lot of pressure, you know, being put on them by their investors, be they public or private investors, to, you know, really up the, um, you know, really up their, 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 their revenues and profit margins at the same time. Um, so, you know, I'm wondering, and this is my words, not yours, Graham is, you know, is the, is the absence of mentioning the gig economy or flexible work or, you know, this, this contractor type, you know, relationship that more and more people have with, you know, with their source of income, you know, I wonder if that itself was also another casualty of this era of super giant, you know, and bigger venture capital funding. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point. Um, yeah, I, 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 guess I don't I mean to back you I, in a, I, into a corner here. That no, wasn't, no, it's not no, my goal, I, I don't think you have. Uh, I, I think that uh, I think that that's an interesting point to think about. Um, I guess my personal belief, and maybe it's just not a VC backable trend, and maybe that's why it's not on this list. But I guess my personal belief is I think there will continue, regardless of whether capital is or isn't used as a mode. I think there will continue to be an increase. Now, my own projection that uh, there will continue to be an increase in the flexibility of what's defined as work and how people derive their incomes moving to and beyond this decade. For sure. Uh, And and I think a lot of trends that uh, folks at WeWork and other places have identified uh, seem to line up with that, right? I mean, there are now commercials and whole uh, services. I downloaded a new app the other day that was just all about, hey, you know, let me help you identify through all of these different ways, all of the different ways you could possibly uh, make extra money. And it asks you this series of questions like, do you have an extra bedroom? If so, are you allowed to rent it out on a short-term basis? I do have an extra bedroom. I'm not allowed to rent it out on a short-term basis. But do you have a car? Uh, if so, we can sign you up for a service that rents your car out on a short-term basis. Um, you know, And so it asked this series of questions uh, of, about a bunch of things, both you know, physical assets as well as time and skills and other things. And it was trying to li- align you to a whole bunch of different gig economy um, systems uh, that you could use extra time, extra talents, and extra stuff or some combination of those three to up your kind of side hustle income in some cases, pretty substantially. So Hmm. anyway, I think it's interesting that there's a market just of people driving you to the various different gig economy stuff. So yeah, for sure. Personally, Hmm. I like flexibility uh, in what I do with my time. So uh, I hope that flexible work uh, becomes even more the norm. And that's my personal bet that, uh, that it will continue to be. I I have personally mixed I, I yeah so first off I I I in general side with you like I also um increasingly uh you know value the idea of flexibility um in in what I do uh even though I don't have as much flexibility right now cuz I'm you know full-time salaried person whatever whatever um but I don't know whether the gig economy has been serving the 
the you know the service providers you know within it um and and that is the sort of thing to you know to to watch going forward is to see you know is to see the effects of like you know this California legislation AB5 um which affects the um you know the 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 sort of like gig economy and and other sorts of regulation that come into place that potentially challenge the that economic relationship that has at least to this point facilitated low, relatively low prices for customers you know because these people are treated as independent contractors and thus not you know eligible necessarily or at least not required to be eligible for uh for health insurance and other sorts of things as well um so you know not to not to get too political in any of this stuff but like personally i think if the whole um you know gig economy or you know this flexible sort of future of work stuff is going to be a success in any sort of you know real sustainable way i think that there's going to need to be a tremendous and this this hopefully from my own personal perspective will be an outcome of the next 10 years you know hopefully we will see some sort of restructuring of the um you know of of the us you know economic system that at just at the bare minimum and this is all i'm really asking for i'm not asking necessarily for like universal basic income i'm not looking to to have some like giant restructuring of how wall street works or whatever but like in order for people to have that flexibility and freedom to move from one place to another their access to health insurance and other really key benefits cannot be uh tied to you know their particular relationship with one particular employer um and you know whether or not that comes in the form of say uh you know a, a universal healthcare program or a healthcare program where anybody who wants access to a um you know to a to a public option can get it or or even if it you know comes down to some sort of new type of market solution that hasn't been you know tried yet which i'm skeptical as to whether or not a new market solution to the US healthcare system exists um you know i i i think that that going forward you know there will have to be some you know significant change in in that economic relationship for future of work stuff to be flexible going uh, to be feasible going forward so that's that's my soapbox moment graham no i i think you're absolutely right and that that that's a really good point um that's a really good point so we didn't talk about this in the prep, but if you don't mind, um, sure. I'm also going to jump down to uh, the what happened in the 2010s post, the addition that he made. That was the ninth item on that list. List, um, you know, he, he indicated that he had kind of left China becoming a tech superpower off of that list. And I bring that up because I know that that's something that we've talked about on this show before and something that you have reported on and covered a lot for, for uh, you know, crunch base, uh, and obviously something that may even be in what you're working on right now, but I just want to invite you, uh, to, to comment on what you, what you think about, you know, China, uh, taking a longer term view as China becoming a tech power, uh, tech superpower over the last, uh, last decade and what that, um, you know, what that means, you know, moving forward. Obviously he does kind of bring that up also in his point about, um, digital currency and cryptography. Um, but, but he brings up a separate point about China, the world's second largest economy sure. specifically becoming a tech superpower. And again, sure. I know that's something you've You've commented on a lot, Jason. Yeah, written about a lot. Well, uh, yes, the bits and pieces of it, right? So, um, so I think like one one thing that that is really important for us to do, you know, as we talk about this and as we sort of conclude, is to is to sort of disentangle the idea that tech equals venture capital and venture capital equals tech, and. Um, and the reason I bring that up is because, at least in the United States, you know, the two have sort of gone hand in hand, right? You know, venture investors, they, it's the, it's the, the sort of stereotypical model is, you know, venture investors help to, 
you know, identify uh, emerging technologies and emerging industries, and with a little bit with a little bit of capital, you know, help to jumpstart you know the entrepreneurs trying to take advantage of those new technologies, those new market opportunities, and hopefully turn relatively modest amount of investment into a very outsized return. And that's a model that has been incredibly repeatable and and for the most part, you know, successful uh, over many, many decades in the United States. And to an extent, you know, other countries, uh, you know, other other markets are trying to pick up on the, you know, United States model of venture capital funding. And uh, China is a is 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 one of these markets that has you know, for a long time, you know, been a major contender in the venture capital ecosystem until, you know, at least data is showing fairly recently. And when I say fairly recently, I really, I really mean like in the last year, year and a half, um, you know, China in the first, I think it was the first or second quarter of 2018, I'll, I'd have to double check, you know, accounted for, for the first time ever, a a uh, a majority of venture capital dollar volume worldwide. Now that was because of a couple of very outsized rounds, but um, but that was astonishing. Now China has since under, undergone a couple of you know a lot of like internal economic turmoil, uh, you know that sort of showing that's the the result of which is that you know there's less venture capital activity going on in China. But be, even though there's less VC activity happening in China, especially at, you know, the later stage and like these like super giant $100 million deals and, and bigger, um, even as that stuff sort of subsides, China continues to establish a, and, and this is a, largely a Chinese government-backed endeavor, uh, to to establish its own um its its own sort of kind of technology ecosystem. I'm not when I say kind, I'm not saying that they're using, you know, materially different technologies, right? You know, we're still talking about, you know, touchscreen phones, we're talking about tablets, we're talking about laptops, we're still talking about all that stuff. But I think what's 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 really different between the United States and China and the technology, the sort of like culture of technology in each major market is is that whereas in the United States a lot of the technological development that occurs is is sort of driven you know out of a sort of like private capitalist interest of you know that that sort of like favors you know innovation for the often for the benefit of the innovator themselves right whether that innovator is an individual entrepreneur or an individual inventor or, you know, or a big R&D lab at a big company, right? Whereas um, because there are, you know, because there's increased, there's an increase, there's, there's an added level of integration between business and government in China, um, you know, and that manifests in the form of, technology companies that are very much more aligned with uh, Chinese government state interests. And, you know, not to be all, you know, weird and dystopian about it, but, you know, uh, it, a lot of times it, 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 it veers toward, you know, some of the more dystopian uh, outcomes that at least, you know, um, American and 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 European sort of like sci-fi literature has 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 prepped ourselves for right like you know ubiquitous facial recognition you know con- near constant tracking of of uh, of your like cell phone location and cell phone activity you know certainly no privacy online you know blocking access to you know certain types of information like like these are things that. Um, they might happen in certain, you know, in a certain scope in the United States, right? Like the NSA hoovers up all sorts of social data and aggregates it somewhere, right? In some big, you know, data center vault in Utah. 
Um, but it doesn't happen in the same way in the U.S. that it does in China. And for the record, you know, anybody who's listening, including potentially Chinese censors, like, I'm not saying that that the Chinese model is necessarily good or necessarily bad. But I am saying that it's very materially different than it is in the United States. And, you know, um, given the sort of uh, long-term, I'm not going to say necessarily an adversarial relationship, but but definitely a long-term rivalry between the United States and China, you know, uh, the va- the fact that that China has become, you know, such a technological powerhouse, not just on the manufacturing side and the component side and the yada yada side, but but from the perspective of being a first party developer of, you know, new and novel you know technologies that are not really used in any great you know scope or scale you know outside of China, like like. Yeah, I mean, not to make a reference to the first thing we talked about, but it's kind of a moat, you know, and 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 it is a thing for for, you know, United States and, you know, maybe the rest of the world to to if not be concerned about, then at least be very mindful of is is the fact that there is such a um, a material difference in the uh, uh, the motivations, perhaps um, behind the. uh and that might be not necessarily the best way to frame it, but but there is differences, and 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 it's important to to, to take note of them and and to understand what might be the drivers behind those differences. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that's a really good point. I mean, that that's basically you also in, in talking about China, you also made point eight on the what will happen in the next decade. <laughs> yeah, and I know we were not going to foray very far into that because these are you know, and and he says this, but these are kind of forward-looking things about what he projects the next decade to happen. Uh, but number eight on that list is mass surveillance by governments. Um, and it will become, it, literally the first sentence of that says, mass surveillance by governments and corporations will become normal and expected this decade. Uh, that sentence goes on, but that's kind of, you know, the, the key point there. And I think, you know, what you're saying is, in certain places, China maybe in particular, that's already the case. Um, and you know, I think that I, I think that the younger a person is, even in the United States, I, I've seen surveys about uh, the less they believe that there is any real sense of privacy. And uh, and so, yeah, I I agree with that. Again, not not foraying off into covering all of or even what I think some of the highlights are of uh, of the next decade uh, article. We will link to that in the show notes too. But um, but yeah, that that is kind of the point you made, and and I agree that that does that does tie closely to China. Again, with with now to do for just one second what what I just said, I'm not going to do too much of. Oh, great. Uh, you know, wh- one of the other things that I think is interesting uh, in this one, I'll bring up only because um, only because I think that uh, that that it you know, it it is inevitable is the first thing on his list of the things that will happen in the next decade um, is all about uh, climate change. Uh, And and I do think that that's a really uh, important thing. Uh, And I think that it will be interesting to see how technology, venture capital, and uh, essentially economics, uh, you know, is impacted in, in in those areas. And and he makes the point that there will be large scale capital investments move from other ways and places capital could be allocated into uh, investments or uh, infrastructure that uh, that that is more climate friendly talk specifically about solar power and what his projections of what it uh, is going to be um, over the next decade so anyway Certainly would invite you to comment if you want to on, on that one, uh, and I won't go any further into into his projections of what uh, what uh, will happen in the next decade, but would definitely recommend everyone read that, and we'll make sure to include that in the show notes too. For sure, yeah, I'm gonna I will I will uh, refrain from commenting uh, on the future. Well, yeah, until the future. So, um, Graham, is there anything else, or uh, do you think it's time to wrap it up? No, I think it's a good, uh, good time to, to wrap it up. All right, it's been man. an interesting last decade, and 
excited to see what happens in the next one. Well, happy 2020, man. 